I'm, ex I'm excited today. Uh, I really felt like, um, as I was thinking through, I feel like God and praying, there's something that I wanted that I felt like was some biblical application for this community that would be really helpful. And so I'm hoping that you feel the same way. I want to piggyback a little bit on what Omid talked about last week. If you weren't here, you uh, haven't had a chance to hear what he had to speak about. It was a lot about achievement and this kind of idea of, a, of, an, of achievement ideal. I work in uh, Pacific Palisades with a lot of high-achieving people um, with a, a place that I would say is very focused at times on achievement. I work in a school, and so the parents, um, you know, pass that right along to their kids. And so we deal with a lot of kids who shouldn't be stressed but are stressed, even as young as first grade, worrying about things they shouldn't worry about because there's this ideal in our society and our culture, I would call it the achievement ideal, which essentially is that you work every possible angle, stress, fixate, manipulate, maneuver, work your butt off to climb this kind of mountain, right? And there's a mountain to climb and you want to climb it and there's a summit to achieve and you want to achieve it. And all I care about is getting to the top of that mountain. The problem is the mountain doesn't really have a top. There isn't really a summit. You get to the, the summit, right? But what, what do you see? The next summit, the next mountain, the next thing to climb. And so you're constantly in this kind of hamster wheel of trying to achieve and trying to work your life out and manipulate every detail of your life thinking that that is going to bring you joy. That contentment is found just around the corner that you're going to get that place. And if we're, we always, this is a constant thought. Even as, a, you know, I remember being, young and single and thinking how great it's going to be when I'm married. And I do. I love being married. I've been married 19 years. I enjoy it. Three of my children are here today in the back trying to hide. And then one of them is with their mom. They're going to see Frozen today. Very exciting. Uh, but, but I thought that would be it. But then you get to that point and you're like, well, there's work to be done here too. And it hasn't achieved all of my contentment that I've been looking for. So maybe when I have kids, that doesn't do it either. Sorry. It is. There isn't a... There isn't a one thing to be done. See, that's the problem. There isn't a top. There isn't a place to achieve that's going to get that. And that's kind of, I think, overall a little bit what Omid kind of went through last week. And then I would call the, the converse to that is the, the trusting ideal, which is to trust, trust God with your time, talents, and resources, giving and giving and giving of those things, knowing the mountain is there and you'd love to climb it. There's things we all want and want to achieve in light, but we don't make that our end. We trust that if I'm meant to get there, God's going to help me get there. The goal is not the summit. I'm not saying it's not attractive, but it's not the goal. The summit I want to reach is found in trusting God and giving of myself to those purposes. See, seeking achievement causes us to be goal-oriented first, first and foremost, and really honestly only, only about the goal. Relationships come second. People become a means or impediments to reaching that goal. Trusting God enables us to look at others, knowing he's authoring our destiny. The goal is trust. As we, tr as we desperately desire to achieve and try to achieve, we, stop, we, we cease looking at the summit anyway. We usually are focused on all the things in our way, right? We're usually focused on the rocks that we could slip on or the sheer faces of the climb that we'll, we feel like we'll never get over, the other climbers who might got, get in the way of our path or even just our own exhaustion of the climb. All of these impediments want to make us quit. A lot of us want to throw up our hands. It doesn't mean we've just stopped desiring to achieve. It means we don't know how to even get there. And we're, and we're so kind of despairing that we kind of want to just give up. It's interesting when you look at Solomon, 
wisest man who ever lived according to the Bible, also a high achiever. In Ecclesiastes, he says, I've seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. See, Solomon, the king who had uh, had truly achieved wealth and fame, he had it all. His wisdom didn't keep him from wanting to achieve and pursuing achievement and making actually some poor decisions, even though he was wise. But that same wisdom caused him to come to this conclusion. Success is not meant to provide meaning in your life. Success is not meant to provide meaning in your life. But we see it in Hollywood, we see it in sports, we see it in nearly every industry. We know there's a problem, yet we all succumb to it. In my profession, I, I, we work with kids and adults parenting those kids, right? And what we see is, you know, every parent will theoretically admit that, that in their lives, hardship has shaped them positively. Because we all know that when you go through hard times, you learn from those hard times, but you also develop empathy and understanding. It bonds you to other people. Many of us are bonded through our weaknesses as well as our strengths. We're not all bonded because we're, we're great at everything. Actually, a lot of times we, we can admit we bond over the areas we struggle, the areas that we admit failure because that vulnerability just kind of hones all together that relationship. But see, that's in theory. But see, the, the people I deal with most of the time, the, the putting that into practice is nearly impossible. They want their kid to have the best part in the play, to be the starting quarterback on the football team, to get all A's in the classroom, and to tell everybody about it on Instagram. That's what they want, if they were really being honest. But what it develops is a misunderstanding of reality. Kids don't know how to have grit. They don't understand hardship. It develops what we call a fixed mindset. It's either good or it's terrible. It's either, you know, perfect or fail. And all of a sudden, I, got, I, have, key, I have kids who, are, who are, think they're dumb if they get A-minuses. <laughs> it sounds crazy, but this is, the, this is what is developed in these things. And then you translate that over to church. You translate that into an environment where people think working through their spiritual life means they have to put it all and make it all look like it's great all the time. You know, you have, there's a phrase, God helps those who help themselves. Totally unbiblical phrase. Not anywhere in the Bible completely wrong and false, yet it's a common phrase. Biblical prosperity equates to financial prosperity, also unbiblical. Yet we have people in churches and places that are promoting this as an ideal that God wants you to be wealthy, God wants you to be successful, and it's all culturally successful, and it's all on the surface. And then the people begin to believe in it within the church that success as a believer in Christ is supporting the right political party or having the right fiscal beliefs or being friends with the right people or choosing the right profession. All the while, while your marriage is supposed to be perfect and your kids are running Bible studies out of their bedrooms and Instagram likes are all over the place. And this, we don't, we, we laugh about it because we know there's elements of truth here. This is why we have professions, especially in ministry, where pastors are failing. And, and it's not because these aren't good men and women. These, it's because it's this ideal of, of achievement and perfection has permeated into the church and into the environment of the church where you can't be vulnerable anymore because what could that possibly mean? What would that look like? What would that feel like? And yes, we can preach about it all day long, but can we actually live it out? Can we be real? Can we be vulnerable? See, the good news is that the gospel is that Jesus came for who? The sick. He came for the broken. 
He came so that we could trust in his plan, not our plan, that he would have it together. We can, don't have to have it all together. Jesus came so that we don't focus on the mountain and all the obstacles and challenges and trying to figure it all out and how to get to the top. That's exactly why he came, and that's what he does every day. He came so that we could freely give ourselves to him and watch his transformative power affect everything. And so as I thought through this idea and wanting to kind of come off of what Omid was preaching about last week, the story that kept coming to me was the story that you guys all have probably heard before, the story of David and Goliath. If you haven't, it's okay because I'm going to talk about it today, so even better. See, my, when I, you know, kind of my background being raised in the church and then really stepping away from that for a season of my life, particularly in my kind of early young adult years, um, what, what drew me back in, uh, God's obviously plan and God's love and um, the Spirit of God, but also beginning to see the application of the Word of God to my life, that the Bible wasn't just this book that I could read and, and have platitudes on my fridge or that has this a kind of idealistic way of looking at life, but that there's actual application that could be inserted into the life I was living right then and now. And so that is what I want to bring today. I want to talk through this story, but I want us to see how there's so much in this. And the beauty of what I feel like God is saying today and how it applies to what I've been talking about is that God has a specific thing to say through this story to resonate to this community right now, to you all and us as individuals, but also as a collective community and a group that is trying to do something very special, I believe and very unique, I believe. And what we need is to know that there's not going to be workmanship and brain power that's going to cause this to come together. It's gonna to be the Spirit of God and it's gonna be all of us entering in to trusting that God knows what he's doing and we need to move forward in that. And I believe that is what the example we have in this story. So in 1 Samuel chapter 17, um, and I'm going to read a, a pretty good portion of it. I'm tried, I tried to keep it to not reading all of it. The story is the entire chapter. I'm not reading all of it, but I'm going to get into it in a minute. But it's important that we read it, understand it, and see how the Bible then kind of speaks into where we are right now. So before we do that, we need to talk about kind of the matchup of foes here, the David versus Goliath. Okay, we hear about this story a lot, right? There's a, there's a book, Malcolm Gladwell wrote it. He takes a little bit of a different spin on it. It's a great book. I loved it. His spin is more the advantages David had. I'm going to focus less on advantages and disadvantages, even though there's some perceived ones, and more on the actions of David in the process of battling this giant Goliath. Um, I don't know about you, when I was a little kid, I remember my parents giving me this little book to read, and there's a picture of Goliath, and he was like 900 feet tall. And I was like, whoa, that is, it, it, that's actually not the case. Goliath was probably more like anywhere from about 6'9", as some measurements have said, to about 9 feet, which would be pretty impressive. Either way, over a foot taller than the average Israelite. So definitely tall. Definitely that's clear. They actually measure him out in Scripture, just different interpretations of that. David's described as a youth. He's not even part of the army. Okay, so the armies of Israel are fighting, are fighting the Philistines, or the Philistines. I'll probably say that both words because I think either one's okay. Hope either one's okay, but you know who I'm talking about. So you have the Philistines versus the Israelites in this battle, and they're fighting, right, for the honor of God, for the honor of their, their people. And David is not even in the army. His three older brothers are. He's not there. He's home. So he's described as a youth. He's not in the army. And in fact, if you see the chapter before, God said Samuel one of his prophets, 
to anoint a king out of the family of Jesse. And Jesse lines up every boy in his family, right? We know this other than David. <laughs> David's out. He's like, oh, it can't be him. So David's not exactly one you would say he's the guy. He's the guy we're going to put forward. He's the obvious one. He's the one who physically looks like he's the achiever. He's not that guy. No, he's in the field doing his job. See, Goliath, on the other hand, he does. He is the imposing presence. He's the guy you pick when you're picking kickball teams, right? <laughs> he's the first pick. He's 6'9". He wears, the, they're, they're estimating his armor alone was about 200 pounds, okay? Um, so that's a pretty, I don't, I don't know if anyone else could not walk with 200 pounds on them, but let alone fight, and wielded about a 30-pound spear in his hand. He terrified the entire army, including Saul. And Saul, as mentioned earlier in Samuel, is being pretty tall himself. But all of them, King Saul, that is, all of them terrified of this imposing presence. And by all measures, not a fair fight. See, Goliath represents, in this case, a little bit of the achiever, right? The picture of arrogance, right? Commanding presence, physically powerful, beyond anything these guys have ever seen. Bible says that the Israelites were dismayed and greatly afraid when he would challenge them. He clearly had reason for confidence because his goal is achievement as an end. And clearly his joy comes from his physical dominance and, the, and, and his achievement as the bringer of terror, if you will. And he is consumed with his own awesomeness. And he and likely feels he has achieved greatly. But also notice this. Goliath, there's a little bit of Goliath there that I, I'm inter interested in where he, it says he comes out every 40 days, morning and evening, to declare his awesomeness, essentially. <laughs> So what I'm wondering is, is he's choosing to come out every day. There's clearly a summit he's still trying to climb as an achiever. Have you ever met anyone who constantly uh, overshares how awesome they are? <laughs> That's the need for achievement. That's that need. It's showing up right there. Consider David. If David carried that same need, he knows his only pathway to success would be to defeat Goliath. But what can he do? He'll inevitably end up in a place of despair. I can't do it. There's no hope. There's no pathway. So rather than fail all die, and die, I'd, run, I'd rather run away and live. I will live a life having not achieved anything, but I did save my own life. That, that's the mindset of David as the achiever. See, achievement is, is the pathway. When you look at it as the pathway to success, it's going to ultimately land you either in, first of all, hopeless despair like David, or arrogance and the need to achieve more like Goliath. The reality that the both of these are inextricably connected is self-absorption. We want to achieve why? For me. So people will respect me, love me, want to be like me. If I don't achieve, I fail. My life doesn't have value. People won't respect or love me if I fail. Doesn't mean achievement can't be celebrated, of course. Work hard on that doctorate. Cheer for your kid's first soccer goal. Go out and celebrate being cast in the lead role. The achievement isn't the issue. The problem lies here, that humans often struggle with an achievement complex, one that manifests in a belief that they must achieve certain things in order to fulfill the deepest parts of who they are. To find that contentment, they must achieve. And that's where Omid landed last week. That contentment is not found in accolades or personal victories, but in relationships with others. And ultimately, our relationship with our Creator. With our God, that God is relational. And that's the thing, that, that blew my mind. When I began to reinvestigate my faith, I found that there, I, could, I could worship a God who wanted to relate to me and connect to me individually and personally. And that's the model of Christ, a connected, relational God, one that I can say, I trust you. He, that's all he's saying. He wants us to trust him. 
That's how we glorify God, is trusting him. So here's David. The achiever in him would despair. He'd look at his brothers. He'd wish them well. Then he'd get out of Dodge. But he doesn't do that. He models something different in this story. The picture of arrogance, Goliath. The picture of humility, in this case, David. If it was achiever versus achiever, we know who's going to win. The story doesn't go that way. At some point, I encourage you to read the whole account, but I'm going to focus on certain parts of it. We're going to pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 17, um, in verse 26. There's a whole kind of, some of I've already alluded to kind of already, the build up to this, but we're going to start with David coming to the army and asking the men in the army the following question. He says, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. What an awesome, encouraging older brother. Eliab is. David says, now what have I done? Can I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. Saul's the king, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant, meaning himself, him, David, will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man. He has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, I struck it, and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. The uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Moving ahead to verse 45. Back now on the field of battle. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. Then it goes on to say in verse 52, Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and the gates of Ekron. 
So that kind of sums up the story, all right? That's the, that's the scripture. Then again, there's more in there, but I wanted to kind of cover the scriptural portion of it. And I wanted to talk through now eight, eight things that God kind of, that I, that I pulled out of this and in, in praying about this that I felt serve as a model for Resonate and why this story is a, is a great place to go as you pray through and think through what your purpose is individually entering into the world that you live in in Santa Monica or the greater LA area, but also as a church community, trying to do something unique and trying to do something that God has called you to that's special. And I believe that's true. First thing that we learn from this story is that David paid attention, he asked the right questions, and followed the inclination of his heart. He paid attention, he asked the right questions, and he followed the inclination of his heart. See, David, when he comes to the battle, he comes to serve his brothers. He's actually bringing them lunch, essentially, or food. And he's bringing them food, and he hears this calling. Remember, every day, morning and evening, 40 days, he hears Goliath talking. And and he recognizes the audacity of what Goliath is saying, mocking God, mocking the people of Israel. And he knew something was wrong. But rather than blow it off, he pursued it. He wholeheartedly believed that what was being said by Goliath to the Israelites was wrong. So my question from that is, will Resonate and, and you guys, this, if the people of Resonate, be a place known? Will this place be known for people who pay attention? They see what is happening around them and call out inconsistencies. Will this church be a place where it is recognized that the love of God is transformative and much deeper than many sectors of our society proclaim it to be? Ask questions. Call things out. Follow the inclinations of your heart. Be a people who know. You know I believe there's something here in knowing Josh and knowing Omid, knowing Sean, knowing some of the leadership here. There's something in each of their hearts that said something is wrong, but it's not God. So what is it? Can we call it out? Can we pursue and speak into it and not be afraid? Or do we choose to just back off, kind of let it be what it is, Let the church be kind of proclaimed what many sectors of the population are saying the church and Christianity and God and who God is, is, and not speak into it at all. And they're saying, no, we're going to speak into it. And I'm saying, will this people choose to do that? Because that's what David did. He could have heard this calling and been like, dude, that guy's really scary, and I don't want to deal with him. So here's your bread, here's your lunch, I'm going back to the sheep. But something in him stirred. And I'm saying, don't fear following the stirring and inclination of your heart in situations you're put in when you know trust that if you have brought come into a relationship with Christ God Bible says that God has given you the Holy Spirit that means something in you the Spirit of God lives within you and speaks into your life and so trust that ask the questions don't just blindly think it's one way or the other because David didn't he chose to stand up for what he thought God was speaking to his heart against way bigger odds, against, against way bigger odds than we face. Let's face it. An entire army, including a big, tall, nine-foot guy. It's much worse, much more intense. He recognized that combining his understanding of God's character with the lies being spoken about the weakness of God's chosen people that needed to be called out. It's the first thing he did. The first thing he said, this isn't, something's wrong. You know, it could have been that the army said, you're right, David, something's wrong. Let's go together. They didn't do that. Second thing we can take away is that he withstood rejection and doubt. 
his older brother, we kind of commented on it, right? His older brother basically said, you're arrogant and conceited. Why would you even like speak of this? You just want to be here for this show. You don't really want to do anything, David. It's always great when an older brother speaks that, right, to you, all right? I was an oldest in my family, and I did plenty of that kind of lame stuff to my brother, to be honest with you. But younger siblings can get this a little better, maybe. But yeah, that wasn't good. But even when he goes to the king, the king kind of says the same thing. He's a little nicer about it, right? He's he's like, this guy is, he's been doing this for a long time, and he's really good at it, and he's a lot bigger than you, and you're a kid. What are you thinking? Like, okay, go home. But David pushes back. And so here we are, you know, I made the joke about the megachurch earlier. Okay, not a mega church, obviously, thank God. But we are, well, people will tell you, we'll say, small church, can you make a big difference? People will tell you that your own desires, they lack power and value. They will tell you that. Are you willing to withstand rejection? And I'm not saying that you need to get up and like make grandiose statements and go to work and make, you know, start reading the Psalms out loud, that, that probably wouldn't be wise and probably not the exact moment that you need to do that. But what it is to say is there are moments in your life where you're going to need to deal with the fact that you're being pushed back on. And what David says is that what people say about me is not as important as what God says about me. Because it's not even about me is what he essentially says. When you see David talking throughout this passage, all you see is him pointing back. Even this achievement, he talks about killing a lion and a bear. I mean, I'd be bragging about that. I'd be putting that on my story, all right? Lion and bear killing, pretty cool. He said he grabbed him by the front. I mean, come on, this guy's pretty cool. But no, he points back to God, back to how God rescued him, how God showed him, how God helped him. So his idea of this rejection, if you remember the chapter before, his, his own dad didn't think he was worthy to be lined up with his brother. So David knows how to deal with that, but he chooses to withstand it. Third thing is he understood who would author the victory. David reminds Saul of his previous achievements, right, overcoming the lion and the bear, but it's very clear who authored his achievements, and I love that the Bible says this. He actually says, after, after listing this cool stuff he did with the lion and the bear, he says, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistines. He knows that he does not have hope without God. He knows that it's not going to happen. He knows he's dead without God. He knows that it's not his savvy. He knows that it's not his slinging skills. He knows that ultimately it's God. But the thing is, he fully believes that God is going to do exactly what he said. And I think what we all need to remember is there are moments in our lives where we need to step forward and just choose to fully believe that God is going to do what he said he was going to do what he says he does. And I think what we struggle with is we want to dip one toe in and make sure God's going to actually do it. But that's not faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. There's always a jump. There's always a canyon to cross. There's always somewhere to go where we have to say, I don't know how this is going to end up, but I trust the one who does know. And that's what he did. He understood that. The fourth thing, it's pretty simple. He believed in the impossible. And and, and, in all honesty, that is a very, very hard thing for us to understand. We We are very much believing in the possible people. And I think our culture has really dumbed this down. You go into certain sectors of the world, um, 
they believe in the impossible. We come to West LA, not really a place where we believe in the impossible. But Saul reminds David that Goliath not only is bigger and stronger, but he says, also, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. Saul is an experienced leader, but he only sees the natural, which is, he's not wrong. What he said is not wrong in the natural. But nothing points to victory for David. David wasn't looking at the natural, though. Resonate Church, do you believe in the impossible? Do you believe that God can do something in your community beyond these walls that has eternal impact? Do you believe that in your own families, in your friend groups, in your workplaces? The example of David would, that David would say that it is entirely possible that things can impact, be impacted through individuals in this community that have eternal impact. It is possible according to the example of David. Do we walk through our lives wanting to just live in a kind of the same kind of way all the time, in the same kind of space every time? Or do we want to enter into situations believing that God can do something great in them and something we would not expect and something impossible? And if you really start to unpeel the people in your lives and your own walk with God, there are things in my life that God orchestrated in my life that doesn't, they don't make any sense how everything worked out to get me to where I am now. And it doesn't mean I've achieved. It doesn't mean I've reached the summit. But what it does mean is God has done things that I would not have done. I would not have done it the way he's done them in my life. And I would bet that nearly every person in this room would say that about their own lives. That God has done things, orchestrated things in a way in your life to get you to where you are. And it, no matter, even if you're in a, in a tough season, you know that the times when it's been good or when it's been better, it's been God orchestrating and maneuvering things. It hasn't necessarily been your own ability to figure it out. And you go back to those moments in your life and you think, I would have chosen different and God knew. Because you have them. You have those moments in your life where the impossible happened. We just don't always recognize it. We don't always see it. The fifth thing is that David flew head first into the fight. See, David makes a declaration to Saul that he would win. He is clear with his words. However, it all comes together on the battlefield. You can say that you can fight. You can say you believe in, these, in this certain thing, whatever that might think, that passion you have. You can say that you want to recycle or you know, save the turtles or whatever it is. Right? You can say that you want to be a person of faith. You can say you want to stand beside the, the, disen, the disenchanted and disenfranchised and marginalized. We can all say those things, and a lot of people do. But when faced with impossible odds, will you do it? This is so powerful to me, this one part of the scripture, right? We do this. We say it all the time. I do it all the time. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be this, right? I'm thinking about like some of the major things. Like You know those people who... You know, for me, it's like people who go out and, and, and bring foster kids into their home. Like, that is just amazing to me and, and powerful to me. And my wife and I, I'm like, how cool is that? And not that I've ever made a declaration we're going to do it, but there's major things that people are making decisions to make and trusting God with, okay? You know, serving in the military, things like, I'm like, wow, that's just amazing that people do that. But you see David here making these claims like, hey, I beat the, the lion and the bear. I'm, I got, I'm your man, Saul. I'm good. You're good. We're, we're going to be fine. We're going to win. But I, you could easily see him getting out there and be like, what was I thinking? Are you crazy? What? Yeah, I didn't mean him. Like, no, he's bigger than I thought. But in verse 48, it says that he didn't do that. Goliath calls him, and what is it? He says he ran 
quickly to the battle line. Like David was ready to go. And he didn't just speak it, he ran towards it. And will resonate consider being a place that does more than just make statements about what we want to be, that we want to be this community that gives, that we want to be this community that is all in, that we want to be this community that makes sure these doors are flung open and anyone who wants to be here can be here? Or are we, are we willing to make those statements? Are we willing to find the ways to make it happen? Consider this idea of giving time, talents, and resources that Omid said last week. Running quickly to the battle lines for us is volunteering, right? It's serving. It's, it's connecting during the week. It's, obviously, it's entering into prayer. It's, it's stepping into voids. It's drawing people into what we believe this place is meant to be about. That's running quickly to the battle lines. Are we willing to run quickly? Sixth thing is he recognized what did and did not fit him. This is a very commonly discussed one in this story where David tries on this armor of Saul and it doesn't fit. It doesn't work. It's like, you know, he's like falling over. It's just too heavy. It just doesn't work. And this is what I love about Josh's vision for this community what, what Omid and Sean and, and the team here are trying to kind of put forward in this community. The vision of, of, of Resonate is based on what fits the ethos of this community. It's, it's the heartbeat of the people, the leadership of this place, and then all of you guys who, want, who make this place your home and want to investigate being here. When I, I remember when I started teaching, I, I came into this classroom where the teacher before me was, was incredibly like, Organized. Now, I'm not very organized, to be honest with you. And she was very, like, she, she ran a tight ship, okay? Now, I ended up learning how to run a fairly tight ship, but there might have been some leaks, okay? But I entered in, and she left me all her, kind of, all her stuff in the classroom, like everything, including her rules and, like, her procedures. And she had this, this like, nine-page uh, document of rules for the class, okay? And I got this thing. It was on a Word doc. I, was, I remember I was on one of those iMacs. You remember those big ones, like the blue back? I had this huge computer, right? And I'm like, I'm going through this thing, and I'm like, I'm trying to figure out. I'm like, that doesn't really sound like me. That doesn't really, ah, yeah. And I have this, like, you know, garbled document that I'm going to then give to my students. And then I, I looked at it, and I go, this is ridiculous. This is so not me. So I just chucked it. I ended up with, like, a one-page thing, like, be nice or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I put it out there, and I figured it out. But the point was I knew... That it wasn't me. Like, that wasn't me. And some of the teachers over the years, and one of, one of the advice I give to my teachers is, like, learn from one another, but do your thing. Be who you are. Because that's what's going to resonate with the students. That's what's going to be built in and, and the kids are going to connect with. Resonate desires to, to do things a little different. It's not, it, it, not, not looking like every other church out there. A place that wants to draw people in who maybe even had really bad experiences with churches. And I love that 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 is the vision and that's the place that this place wants to go. David's example affirms that. Fight with the armor that fits you. Do your thing. God wants to do his thing through you. There isn't one way to do this Christian faith. There isn't one way to do it. There's one person, Jesus, one God, but many ways. And, and David recognized that. 
an important recognition. Seventh thing is he played off his strengths and trusted that God would be enough. As the story goes, David defeated the mighty Goliath. He accomplished the intended purpose. And ironically, he actually ended up with an incredible achievement. Unbelievable. The achiever. But I said that the achievement wasn't the, achievement's not the issue. The problem would have been if it was the end goal. But for David, it's clear that he trusted God with the gifts he had given him. He didn't need a sword and armor. He needed five smooth stones. His weaponry looked different than any warrior in the history of battle. Yet it was the right weaponry. It can look different if it's the right. Because the weapon isn't the reason he won. In the end, it was this statement that David makes. He said, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. Traditional ways to come against him, right? But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. And this very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword and spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. There will always be a temptation for us as individual believers or resonate as a community to wield the same weapons that others wield and to win battles the same way as others. But we need to trust that the gifts and talents that God has given were given to us for a reason. Ultimately, for us to find the joy and contentment we we so so desire, we need to know that God is not pushing us to play off our weaknesses, but are to utilize our strengths. David knew what he was good at. He knew that he could sling this, he could sling rocks. He knew that he was good at that. He knew he was probably fast. He knew that he was probably in the right, could kind of find the right angle. And he knew ultimately the biggest strength he had was he had the God of the universe on his side. And this is the beautiful thing about our faith is that if you, when, when you enter into Christian faith, you begin to realize that a God who's all-loving, all-powerful, sovereign is actually on your side. And he's not looking for you to find your way to, his, to, to him. He's found a way to you. And he's availing himself to you and saying, do your thing. Do it your way. The last thing is his example emboldened those around him. I kind of just noticed this. I've read this story a lot of times, but I never really thought about the last verse I read which was, it says, Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. The story closes with them surging forward with a shout. And what I love about that is these guys were once cowering and terrified, terrified an army that was scared, that had lost their vision, lost their purpose, because they were all achievers. They all felt like we have to do it one way, and we could not do it that way. But now that 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 Goliath, kind of the emblem of that achievement, of that failure to them was dead, David's example then reminded them that they had a purpose and a plan and something that they could have victory in. They were an army meant to fight and to stand up for the name of their God. And if what this church is really about is truly of the Lord, then not only will God bring individualized victories into our lives, not only will he bring 
and create a community of connection, love, giving, and ultimately a measure of contentment, but it will actually cause others to be inspired through this place. And that's believing, yes, the impossible. That's believing that God can do things that we don't know and we can't see and we can't plan and we can't manipulate, we can't orchestrate. But see, David is this, David represents this stepping into this place and boldly moving forward into something because God is that big and that good. And I have to believe that this community, the reason that we're all here, the reason you guys are here, is because you believe in a God that has ceaseless love for this world and wants to invade this world with that love and wants people to know freedom in their lives. And you recognize that that isn't here now and that you are now standing into this place like David before Saul and saying, I believe that God can do this in my marriage, in my friendships, in my workplace, and through this church community. See, the gospel themes are all over David and Goliath's story. Jesus came into the world in an unconventional way, born in a stable to live an unconventional life, hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, touching and healing lepers, calling out the religious elite, and then to die, not as a king on a throne, but naked and bloody on a cross. None of Jesus' gospel screams of worldly achievement. Yet all would agree that his story was transformational. We're going to take communion in a moment. Communion is a beautiful way for us to have what we call fellowship with God and fellowship with the Spirit of God. You are welcome to come to the table, the bread representing the body of Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, we know it also as the Last Supper, Jesus breaks bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup. And in this case, you can dip your bread in the cup. And he says, he says this is my blood shed for you. And again, do this in remembrance of me. Um, and you are remembering Christ's death, but you are also fellowshipping with Christ's spirit. And what I would love us to do today is as you come, you take it, you come back to your seat. We're going to pray. But as you, as you pray and as you worship, we're gonna th- we're gonna, I want you to hear what God is speaking to your heart and trust that you know, Jesus didn't just come to save you for eternity. Jesus came so you would have a relationship with him now and that you could hear from God. The Bible says he broke down the middle wall of separation between God and man. As David heard on the field of battle the word that, didn't, that res, didn't resonate with his spirit and chose to act on those things, what are situations in your, our life that God is speaking about?